Thanks for listening to this podcast from Christ Church of Orinoco. Our hope is that it would help you discover completeness in Jesus. Now for this week's teaching. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Therefore anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Matthew 5, 17-20 Good morning, church. Let's open our Bibles or click open our Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. I'd love for you to have the entire chapter open in front of you this morning as we are going to be spending the next two weeks in that famous Sermon on the Mount that Jesus preached. And I want to set up the context for it. And I'm going to challenge you to consider what Jesus is doing in the entirety of Matthew chapter 5 without going into all the specific details. I'd actually like to give you the mindset by which this week you could read Matthew 5 and listen to the words of Jesus in a fresh way. Now, we're not looking for a new way to say it, but actually to understand the context in which Matthew gives us and learn from it as we process what Jesus is saying to the people. So we know the context of this in particular is that crowds have gathered around Jesus. Some were his called disciples and some were not. There were some enemies there and there were people kicking the tires trying to figure out what this Jesus was talking about. He gathers on the side of a mountain using the natural acoustics of the mountain. Jesus, since he created the world, he knew how it worked. He got a bunch of people together on a, he stood on top of a mountain. He allowed his voice to travel down into the valley where the people would have been gathered. Now, whether it's a mountain in Colorado or just a big tall hill, We call it the Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus is casting a vision to a group of people. And the way we know that is if you look at the conclusion of Matthew chapter 4, if your Bible's open, if you look at verses 23 and 25, it says that what Jesus was doing was to preach the good news of the new kingdom. That everything he did, whether he was healing or providing for people or speaking to them or praying for them, his goal was that they would understand this kingdom and the good news that the kingdom brought. All of that plays into our minds about what Jesus is doing here. There there are two ways that we can look at this. You can look at the Sermon on the Mount one of two ways. It's either a list of things Jesus expects from us. Like, here's a to-do list if you want to be one of mine. Or, this is what God is going to do in you if you become one of mine. Do you see the difference? The difference between reading the Sermon on the Mount as a new law, a new Torah, or reading the Sermon on the Mount and listening to it as an invitation to the transforming work of God in us. This isn't an apology. I I, I want to give you a warning. This is a very complex presentation this morning. You're able to handle it, but you're going to have to engage with me just a little bit. No, I'm not going to expect you to answer questions. I've gotten over that years ago. 
Thank you. What I'm really looking for you is not to leave the discussion, to understand that you can read the Sermon on the Mount as a new law, a new Torah that God is giving you, that if you're going to be mine, you do these things. Or you can envision it as a transforming work that Jesus is going to do in us as a part of his new kingdom. You see, the reason I told you that when they gathered on the hillside, not all of them had dedicated themselves to following Jesus. So why then would Jesus give them a list of things they had to do when he was just inviting them into the good news of this kingdom? If I can oversimplify what I intend to say this morning to challenge you with is this. This sermon is about how we become a new humanity in this new kingdom. How he makes us new a new kind of humanity, not the earthly kind, but a kind that is living in a new kingdom with a new power and a new authority. So let's talk about the new humanity. Let's just take a peek at what Jesus may be doing with this famous passage called the Beatitudes. Because remember, you can make it a list of things to do, or you can make it a list of the things that God will do in us if we trust him. So chapter five, verse one. Now, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Understanding what Jesus is doing comes down to what you understand a blessing to be. Now, I'm not making fun of a false presumption. I am so grateful for a series of teachings that allowed me to escape my previous understanding of the Sermon on the Mount because I had always, just by my own choices, decided that the Sermon on the Mount was a new law. It was a new, new order of the way I had to behave. And I would then have told you that a blessing was an acquirement, an achievement, an accomplishment. I would have read this to, to say that if you do these things, God will bless you, almost like a spiraling upward of righteousness. I don't believe that anymore. If you look at the way we use blessing in our culture today, the blessings of the Beatitudes would sound like this. Blessed are the rich, for they all have it now. Blessed are the powerful, for they can make happen what needs to happen. Blessed are the sophisticated, for they get in on everything. That was, is how we use the word blessings, isn't it? Uh, you hear it all the time. Someone's business is doing well and they're a, they're a, a Christian and they tithe or give generously to, to help others and God is blessing their business. Hmm. Does that mean the Christian person living a pure life whose business went bankrupt, God was angry? See, how we define blessings matters to how we define the Sermon on the Mount. I don't believe this is all a new Torah, a new set of laws. In fact, the Greek word that Jesus used for blessing is so unfortunately interpreted in some translations as happy. And, and that is, it's not the principle here. It's not about happiness. The word blessed that Jesus uses means a person who is especially favored by God. But when you hear the Beatitudes, the blessings, uh, they're not blessed because they earned it. 
In fact, I believe Jesus is casting a vision to us that says these people are blessed in spite of their condition. Those who mourn, those who grieve, those who try to keep peace in a world of war. If you look at it, the poor in spirit, does that mean that you and I have to act poor in spirit to trick God into blessing us? Does it mean that if, if, if my friend Dennis here hungers and thirsts for righteousness more than me, that God's going to bless him in comparison to me? Because if we turn it into a new law, I think we have stolen what Jesus is talking about when he talks about the good news of his kingdom. He's actually saying to us that in spite of our condition, God shows favor to those who turn to him. That he meets us where we're at. That those, these are not blessings we earn, they're conditions we're in. And the blessing and favor of God can find us even in our broken positions. Now, are any of these things evil or wrong? No. Jesus has told us we'll be persecuted if we follow him. That we will lose in the eyes of the world the things that they give us if we truly follow him. But don't believe for a second, or do you, that if you're not persecuted in this lifetime, God can't bless you? So I think if you track with me, here's the, the general statement I want you to, to see as we begin to process over these next two weeks, this powerful invitation to the kingdom. Blessed is the person who is brought into Jesus' kingdom and even more so those who never imagined this could be theirs. And if that statement on the screen you see is true, doesn't that sound like the kind of people that flock to Jesus? Not the accomplished not those that were super special, but actually the ones who were brought to Jesus by a simple invitation, come follow me, as we talked about last week. Remember, the reason you and I are in the kingdom of heaven is because Jesus is kind. And Jesus loved us when we did not love him. So he invites us in by his grace and mercy. And Jesus said, blessed is the one who God shows favor on, even those who never expect that will be theirs. And not only are you blessed to be a part of his kingdom, but then Jesus casts the vision and he says, and in that kingdom, when you understand how blessed you are to have been received by him in whatever condition you were, that he called you to himself so that he may show his favor upon you by his grace and mercy, he didn't do that so that we would go hide in a cave and protect our blessing as if it's the only thing. Jesus actually goes on in the next few verses to talk about what this new humanity will be here for. And he uses two great examples, salt and light. Now, having done a lot of research over the past 15 years in the Sermon on the Mount, because I'm fascinated by this new concept and how it opens my eyes up to what Jesus does elsewhere in scripture that I would have missed. In the midst of this, there is more debate and dialogue on what Jesus is doing with salt and light than I care for. I'm a very simple preacher. I don't mean to make fun of the scholarship on this, but can we just draw what I believe is the core of what Jesus is trying to point out here? That being blessed by God is not just ours to keep. There's a reason we're being blessed by God. There's a reason he's invited us into his kingdom, that we might become kingdom builders, that we might invite others into it. And he uses salt and light. And you know this, salt's a good thing, isn't it? Okay, let me ask you another question. I forgot, you don't answer. Let's try again. Imagine a beautiful piece of corn on the cob, fresh summer sweet corn, like July 5th summer sweet corn, the kind God wants us to enjoy. It's cooked beautifully. 
you have buttered it so it's dripping out your elbow. Do you like salt? Ah, there you are. There's a practical purpose to it. Salt enhances. Salt enlivens. Salt preserves. I can go into great detail about how salt was something back then that would have had the cachet to his audience that we miss on it because everything is preserved by ingredients that taste like salt. But you know when you're at the movie theater and they put that, I like to say, give me a bucket of butter and put some popcorn in it, that if it doesn't have salt, it's not as good. Jesus says you are here to enhance, to bring flavor, to bring life to this world, to preserve the things that matter. Then he says it's like light. And here's the beautiful imagery that Jesus uses about light. He calls himself the light of the world. Light dispels darkness. Darkness cannot overcome light. Do you see it? Jesus is saying in my kingdom, I'm going to do a work in you. I'm going to call you when you're unworthy and you wonder if you're even deserving of this. You're not, but God's blessing will be on you. And I'm going to invite you into a journey where you are going to become salt and light in this world in such a way that the glory of God will be displayed in your life. We are a new humanity in God's kingdom. Because we're a new humanity, or maybe I should use the word renewed humanity, we are going to be different from the world we're in. But that is not to our glory. It's part of God's purpose. Let's look at the second point this morning. Jesus is establishing the value of his authority. And he does it in a way that may shock some of us. Verse 17. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Now, I want to point out something to you here. It's found in chapter 5, verse 17. And if you can flip your Bibles over real quick, let's look at chapter 7, verse 12. You're going to notice that what the scholars will call an inclusio. In other words, Jesus has just introduced to his audience, these are the people I'm going to make into a new humanity, a people that walk by the spirit, not by the flesh. And it's not what we do, it's what he does. And then he begins to say, but here's what you need to know about my authority. I am, chapter 5, verse 17, I did not come to abolish the law of the prophets. Chapter 7, verse 12, for this sums up the law and the prophets. This is an inclusio. This is the bread and the sandwich meats in between. He says, let me talk to you about the law and the prophets. If you believe that the Sermon on the Mount is a new way to live your life, a list of things to do, then you will have dismissed the Old Testament law principles. The spirit of the law brings life. The letter of the law brings death. Jesus is saying, when you live my law, the delight of God is in the law. If you live out the law and you live it out of duty, you will have turned it into the letter of the law and you will have lost the joy of it. But rules, man, who digs rules? Have you noticed as you've gotten older and matured, as, as you become into adulthood, have you noticed that some of the rules your parents had, you had? In other words, have you, you ever put your kids through what your parents put you through? Even though when you were their age, you hated it too? Why do we do that? Revenge is fun. <laughs> no, no, the reason we do it is because we realize there was wisdom to it. There was a reason why our parents didn't want us running the streets late at night. There's a reason they put limitations. There's a reason I couldn't leave the house without telling my parents where I was going. And it wasn't because they were trying to crush me. They were trying to love me and protect me and use their wisdom. 
You see, when we see the law of God as punishment, Jesus said, I want you to understand, God is not changing his mind. The will of perfect will and wisdom of God is displayed in the law. The law can bring life when we live the law for the father and not for the letter and the duty. So Jesus is showing us that this kingdom I'm bringing is actually going to teach each and every one of us what God has desired all along. Now, homework assignment. Like, can he do that? Yes, I can. And we'll check your homework next week. Have you ever read Psalm 119? It's 176 verses, so don't try to do it while lying in bed because you'll wake up somewhere in the 14th verse. But 176 verses about how the law of God is our delight. It's our bread. It's our water. It's our warmth. It is a tribute to the will of God for us. It's not a punishment. At the end of the 119th Psalm, the author of the Psalm doesn't say, I did it all, I accomplished it. He says, God, you are working, you are good. It is the lamp unto my feet, the light unto my path. In other words, when we understand what God is doing, when we understand the why before we engage the what, the law of God becomes a blessing. And Jesus is saying to you and I right now, I am not changing what God has always wanted. I am demonstrating you to, to you how to live it out. So, verse 18. I tell you the truth. There's so much to do here. I'm telling you, I'm not getting the details and I can't stop myself. 31 times in Matthew, Jesus says, I'm telling you the truth. If you have the King Jim Bible, it says, truly, truly, I say unto you. Jesus is making a point here. He's making a powerful point. He says, I tell you the truth until heaven and earth disappear. Not the smallest letter nor the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Jesus said, God has not changed his mind. His plan has always been perfect. And when we understand the perfection of God's plan, we will give ourselves to it instead of simply doing it by duty. And then Jesus gives us a measurement for ourselves. Verse 19. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is saying, do not walk away from God's perfect will. It works. It works well. It accomplishes God's purposes. And Jesus wants us to know as the new humanity in his kingdom, it not only accomplishes God's purposes, it will also help you find yours. Do you see that? The will of God is not just what God wants. It's what we have been created for. Jesus said, don't think I'm bringing you a new law. I'm actually showing you how to live the law of God that is perfect. The law that brings life and brings hope. So don't walk away from the perfect will and wisdom of God. Verse 20. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law... You will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Wait, what? What? Preacher, you just said it's not about what we do. It's about how we respond to who God is and what he's offered us and the great work, transforming work of God in our lives through Jesus. I still believe that. Let me show you what Jesus is doing here. He says, unless your righteousness surpasses that of those that you have set as the standard, you certainly will not be a part of my kingdom. Can I rephrase this for us? If you're going to live your life comparing yourself to others and how good you've become compared to what you were, you will not understand what it is to be in my kingdom. You will be building your own. 
You'll be running your own race and measuring your own speed and measuring how many people are behind you. It's our tendency. Now, I believe this is universal. Tell me if I'm wrong. You get to the grocery store, you see a bunch of lines at Walmart, two people are employed at the cashiers, there's 97 people want to check out, right? Do you measure the minute you get there? She looks older and slower. He's disinterested. That lady's got too many things. That guy, I don't know if he's going to have coupons. Oh, my. And you begin to measure who you can beat to the front of the line. And even though you're not first, when you get by that guy who's three feet behind you, do you fist pump your own heart in a little way? Am I the only one in the room who's like, yeah, I'm good at this? That's the righteousness of the Pharisees. It's not about capturing the heart of what God wants for us. It's simply doing what we're told better than anyone else. You see, Jesus is not saying that righteousness doesn't matter, but whose righteousness are we talking about? Because when Matthew uses the word righteousness, he's talking about conforming to God's desires for us because we love God. Not so we can win. Not so that we're better than someone else. You see, Jesus said, I'm going to demonstrate what it means to live out the will of God. And he said, I'm going to keep the law perfectly. And it won't be duty. It'll be love. He's not asking for more effort, more perfection, or more piety. He's only asking for more trusting in the ways of God. To ask ourselves the question, can God be trusted? It's, it's not an accomplishment. It's not an acquirement, the righteousness that we're after. It's actually a responsive faith to the heart of God. And the transforming work of God will change our hearts. So what does kingdom righteousness look like? It's probably the question most of us want to ask at this point. If my premise is correct, then how is my being good different from the righteousness Jesus desires me? How come doing the things I'm supposed to do compared to the things my heart desires to do? Because my heart is a cavern of darkness most of the time. So what's gonna change me? And that's the key to this. I want you to notice that when Jesus speaks about his authority in the next few verses of chapter five, he will say to you, it is written or I tell you, depending on your translation. When he introduces the human interpretation, the righteousness of the Pharisees, he'll say, you've heard it said. Don't miss those details. Jesus will say, the world says this, but I say this. And at that moment in time, when the one calling us to follow him says, you can listen to them or you can listen to me, what should we choose? A heart that chooses to listen to God, to follow the example before us is the heart that is pursuing the kingdom. Does it require that we do things? Yes, but remember, we're after the why we do things before we get concerned about the what of doing things. This same, let me phrase it just simply this way. The thing that brought you into the kingdom of heaven will be the thing that keeps you in the kingdom of heaven. If your entrance was by your own accomplishments, then you will try to stay in the kingdom of heaven by doing your own list of accomplishments. If what brought you into the kingdom of heaven was the grace and mercy of God, then that love for the grace and mercy of God is what will set your feet in the kingdom to pursue more of that. So what brought you in can keep you in. So what does kingdom righteousness look like? Very simply, it's the way we care for others as we have been cared for. The way we care for others as we've been cared for. 
We're going to bounce through the remaining. Jesus gives six comparisons between the righteousness of man and the righteousness of God. So let's look at them. Verse 21. And this is Jesus saying to us, the world is telling you this. You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. Verse 27. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. Verse 31. It has been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. Verse 33. Again, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not break your oath, but fulfill to the Lord the vows you have made. Verse 38. You have heard that it was said, eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Verse 43. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Now here's what's interesting. The righteousness of mankind is not foolish. When you hear those things, you shouldn't kill. You shouldn't commit adultery. You should, you should not divorce. You should, you should not break your oath. You should, you should exact justice. An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth seems reasonable. You've heard it said you should love your neighbor. All of those things are true. The righteousness of man is not corrupt and evil. It just stops at duty. It doesn't have a kingdom heart. It's not motivated by love. It's motivated by rule. The, the letter of the law brings death to self and others. You see, they were not separate of caring. They tried to have good social constructs. They wanted to live in a civilized society. So he said, you've, been, you've heard it your whole life that, that this is what people believe in. But Jesus takes us deeper into the heart of God. Go back with me to verse 22. You've heard it said that you shall not murder. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Verse 28. You shall not commit adultery, but I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Verse 32, but I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality makes her the victim of adultery. Verse 34, but I tell you, do not swear an oath at all. Verse 39, but I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn it to them the other also. Verse 44, but I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that they may be sons of your father in heaven. You see, in a human court, we can only judge external behavior. That's the righteousness of man. In the kingdom, God judges the heart. And Jesus extends the law to the principles of caring for others, not just so we measure better, but we are called to extend the righteousness of God because he extended it to us. Do you see? What brings you into the kingdom keeps you in the kingdom. If it's rules, you'll live for rules. If it's love and grace, you'll extend the law to its heartbeat. The care, and if you go back to all of the commands that Jesus lists here, they're all found in the Old Testament law about how we take care of others and protect others. So here's the question of the morning. It's the essay, question and exam. What is it going to take for God to produce this in you? Because I'm going to conclude today, there's no perfect people here. Meaning, that if the kingdom of heaven was all about impressing God with how we're improving, some of us should tap out. Amen? Your preacher should. So if it's not about that, then what is it about? It's about the transforming work of Jesus, making a new humanity through the power of the Holy Spirit 
by love and grace. You and I were made for this. So what is it going to take for God to produce this in us? It's going to take a transformed heart. Look at verse 48. Jesus says, be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly father is perfect. Perfection, ugh. Preacher, I thought you just told me that it's not about what I do. It still isn't. That word perfect doesn't mean what we have in our, our language. Like right now, if I, I bring out a bar stool and sit it right here, so I'd be sitting and I would say, is there any perfect person in this room? And unless you're my granddaughter, please remain seated. <laughs> because I know none of us have met the standard of perfection. So is Jesus just jacking us up here when he turns around and he says, oh, and now, now that I've invited you in and I've given you this kingdom heart that you can love others the way you've been loved and you can live out the law of God the way he intended it to, now you better do it perfectly. It's not what he's saying. The word perfect here, I'm told, the Greek word that is in your text translated into English that we translate perfect is actually a word that describes the end result of something for which you were created, a suitable end result. And Jesus tells us here, it's like a full-grown, mature adult who has overcome childish ways. That's what it means to be perfect. To pursue the right things, to grow into maturity. As we say around here at Christ Church, that you might find your completeness in Jesus because what brings you in the kingdom keeps you in the kingdom. Your perfection did not bring you in. There'll be no perfection from you. So whose perfection do we rely on? His. We seek the perfection that our father has demonstrated to us, that he is mature and wise and perfect. And he's calling us to lean into him. This is not how we become sons and daughters of the king. It is how we pursue the heart of God. That we might seek that wisdom and that goodness that invites others into. That God might transform our hearts. What's it going to take for God to do this kind of work in us? It's going to change him changing us inside out. You don't have to get this all lined up to be his. You are his. Let him change you. You see, when Jesus said, be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect, he also could have used, or may have used, the exact word used in the Old Testament where God told the people of Israel, be holy because I am holy. Be perfect because I'm perfect. Be mature because I'm mature. Pursue my ways. Pursue my heart, God is saying. Follow what I'm doing in the world and trust it and watch me do a work from within you. You have heard the world tell you this is enough, but I tell you there's so much more to go deeper into the new humanity following Jesus. And as always, Jesus never asks us to do a thing he's not already done himself for us. Think about it with me. Jesus, who called us into a kingdom of living out of a life found in God's grace, who came inviting others to follow him because they were loved by the Father. The one who gave up his life to show us that the heart of the kingdom is for the glory of God. And Jesus said, you gave me your glory and I returned it. He does not lower the level of righteousness. He fulfills it. Jesus doesn't say it's okay not to be okay, but he says you are loved when you're not okay. And if you trust that love, that love will transform you from inside out. It will heal and bring life and bring hope. He does this so that the kingdom life becomes abundant, not busy. He promises us abundant life, 
not a life of duty and obligation and pain. It's like when a parent asks their child to do something. It's not because they can make them. It's because they want to be a blessing to them. They want to share with them what this life can be. So we teach responsibility and we teach caring for others and we teach not to be selfish, not because we're punitive and not if they do or don't do those things, they're less our child. We actually do it so they become mature to live the way they were created to live, to experience the fullness of this. And this is Jesus' invitation on that mountainside to these people. It's not a new list of things to do so God's impressed. It's a way to love God by loving others and committing ourselves to that. Behind you in this room are two tables that have lamps lit. And there are some people heading to those tables right now. Maybe today's the day that a new awareness comes to mind about what Jesus is inviting you into. And maybe for the first time in your life, you can lay off the burden of having to be good enough and instead free yourself to just love God and to learn to love God as he's loved you, to open the word of God, to develop a relationship with him and come in contact with his heart and his passion for you. Jesus is asking you to follow him. And for those of us who once said, I will follow you and find ourselves sitting on the sidelines or walking the other direction, maybe today's the day we turn around and go back to the love of God, which will keep us in the kingdom because we will pursue him more and more thirsting and hungering for him. Or maybe you just want to be prayed with this morning or have someone in your life that you would like us to help you pray for, that they might know what a beautiful opportunity is to live as salt and light in a world that needs both so desperately. We're going to sing this next song, which is a statement about our our king. It's a statement about God's perfection and his calling us into him. While we sing this song, if you would like to go to the table, they'll meet you there. Or maybe after the service, you come out to the prayer center Don't leave today without opening yourself up to what Jesus is offering you because blessed are those who are in his kingdom. Let's stand together. Thanks again for checking out this podcast. We hope this teaching helped you to discover completeness in Jesus and encourages you to help others do the same. For more resources or to learn about Christ Church in general, visit us online at cco.church.